The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Wes Jamison. He is an associate professor of public relations at Palm Beach Atlantic University and president of Cornerstone Public Relations, LLC. I heard Dr. Jameson speak about a topic that will keep everyone on their toes, and that is pink slime. Welcome, Dr. Jameson. Thank you very much. I wanted to ask you how someone in public relations becomes interested in food. Start out, well, other than consuming it quite often during the day, many (laughs) years ago, many years ago when I graduated as an undergraduate, I actually cut my teeth in the food retail sector for a grocery chain in Florida and now in the southeast called Public Supermarkets. Mm -hmm. They are consistently ranked as, if not the top, one of the top retail grocery chains in the United States. And one of the reasons why, Melinda, is that they emphasized customer service in everything they did. And so when I worked with them uh, in the poultry end of their business, and in the meat department, everything he did emphasized customer satisfaction. So I became very, very interested at that point back in the early to mid-80s in customer perceptions. And we would have a series of food safety issues that would arise where the science, per se, would say one thing, but customer perception would say another. And, and, and that's where I first learned to try to walk that line between perhaps what the science may indicate versus what consumers' ideas about the food required. And it's a very, 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 very interesting upbringing. Mm-hmm. Well, I find it interesting that you got a PhD in agricultural politics and that your specialty is persuasive messages in agricultural politics and policy. And I have to tell you, because most of my work is in consumer education and public health, I too am very interested in how we communicate about food and health issues. And certainly, you know, your presentation about the conflict in the age of pink slime was especially interesting to me because here we had this really I don't know what word to use to describe the term pink slime. Let's just say it was extremely effective in getting consumers' attention. It wasn't so positive for the beef industry, though, was it? Well, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't particularly effective or positive for the makers of lean, finely textured beef, also known as pink slime, because once it broke out of the backwaters of blog chatter into the mainstream consciousness of pop culture, consumers neither had the construct or the cognitive ability to understand what it was, and frankly, they they didn't understand why it needed to be added to the beef supply. So it was quite devastating for the company that actually made made the product. Mm -hmm. And we should just let our listeners know that pink slime is a term that sort of slipped out, as I understand it, and you can explain how that happened, but... The term pink slime applies to lean, finely textured beef. What is that, Wes? Lean, finely textured beef 
is the end result of a process that harvests the beef from fat trimmings. Traditionally, when you cut apart a cow, a beef cattle, into the various parts that are going to go into the human meat supply, there would be fat trimmings that had pieces of actual beef attached to them. We've all seen that. If we've trimmed our own steaks, we've seen those trimmings of beef. Because of the nature of trying to get at that beef off of the fat trimmings, it was prohibitively inexpensive. It took the dexterity of a surgeon and was very time and labor intensive to try to harvest that beef off of the fat trimmings. But some about 20 years ago, a process was developed whereby through a series of steps, they were able to separate the beef from the fat, treat the beef, and then combine it with things like ground beef and serve it into the human food supply. So I could go, I could get more technical, although I'm not a food scientist, I know the process, but basically it was a way for the industry to harvest beef from fat trimmings and therefore sell it into the human feed supply, food supply. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, consumers got wind of the, of the steps involved in getting that beef off the fat and bone, and that was with the use of ammonia. Is that correct? Well, what I would say is it was the end result of several steps, all of which would be foreign to the understanding of what meat is supposed to be to your average consumer. First, when you, as we all know, when you heat fat, it, it uh, liquefies. So they put the, beef, the, the fat trimmings with the beef still attached uh, into a process that heats it so the fat begins to liquefy. They spin the products in a centrifuge, basically a centrifuge, which separates out the fat from the remaining beef. Then they spray the beef that has been pulled from the fat through the centrifuge. They spray it with ammonium hydroxide, which is a acceptable, uh, acceptable for want of a better term, uh, food additive from the Food Safety and Inspection Service and the USDA. And then the, the product is beef, but it is frozen and then added in to other ground beef. And so for an average consumer, at least in our focus group testing, when you start using the words like centrifuge and ammonium hydroxide, they begin asking, is this really beef? What is going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the ammonium hydroxide was probably more offensive than centrifuge. Would you agree? Uh, I couldn't speak as to the uh, the offensiveness of it other than the idea that ammonium hydroxide doesn't sound like a food additive you or I would use in our kitchens. Exactly. Something we clean our oven with. And when you begin... And when you begin tampering with meat, you begin tampering with a series of consumer expectations that are very deeply held and, and in many ways very complex. And in a lot of ways, the, the pink slime or lean, finely textured beef controversy can be traced right to that idea of tampering with the meat supply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought it was very interesting in the presentation that you gave about how because we are so removed from food production – that we find maybe a little bit higher risk associated with some processes that we don't understand. I wouldn't say that we find higher risk. I would put it this way. The risk we do find, we have no way to understand. 
Mm-hmm. There's a in the social psychologists who study risk, they would tell you that we tend to overestimate risks that were underestimate risks that we know very well. This was a new risk. People had, and it, and it fit the typology or the characteristics of a risk communication crisis. It was a process that was poorly understood, poorly communicated, that consumers had no way to understand the level of risk in relation to the level of reward. And the, the, they had no way to know which product they were consuming had been treated. And so it had all those components of, of lacking both knowledge and cognitive ability to understand the risk, so the risk was actually amplified in the public consciousness. Yeah, you know, I remember doing some risk analysis work back when ALAR was an issue with apples. And that's really where I learned about some of the principles that you mentioned during your talk. Back from 1992, you showed a study where different factors were looked at in terms of public confidence versus public avoidance or reducing public confidence. So things that we're familiar with, and I love to use the example of, you know, driving in a car versus flying, where we perceive we're in control versus we're not in control, that implies if we're in control, there's a lower risk associated, even if the the behavior really is more risky. Yes, and other factors, for instance, if the rumored or potential consequences of the risk are indistinguishable, we can't know our exposure levels, that decreases public confidence. Whereas if we have some level of understanding of what our exposure is, it absolutely undermines public confidence in the risk. And so when you take a look at lean, finely textured beef, popularly known as pink slime, one of the issues was consumers had no way to know if their particular ground beef contained this product that they didn't understand, mm-hmm. that they couldn't control, and that they didn't know the consequences or benefits of. Mm-hmm. And then to make matters more complex, BPI is the company that was, I think, targeted in terms of this process. And you describe what BPI did after this got out in the media. You, you described it as BPI turtled up. In other words, they didn't come right out and explain the process. They they didn't come out to the media. They weren't first. You, you said companies in terms of PR, they have to be first and they have to be accurate. But that's not what happened. So it, it sort of mushroomed in terms of making this even more problematic in the consumer's eye. Well, in their case, uh, you know, the sort of the term among PR professionals, turtling up means they go into defensive mode. Mm. And also, given the rapidity of rumors spreading in social media these days, it's very, very difficult to play defense as information poorly framed, either accurate information out of context or misinformation begins to spread. The rule of thumb in crisis communication, and this was a full-blown crisis for them, is to tell all you know, as soon as you know it, be accurate and be updating. So you want in any in response to any risk perception consumers ask three questions basically what is it what should i think about it and what should i do about it and if companies or organizations or individuals don't provide answers early in the risk crisis cycle to those three questions consumers will turn elsewhere and find answer those find answers to those questions and that's what happened in the lean finely textured beef case whatever happened to all of that 
lean, finely textured beef that had been extracted from the fat and bone. Has it been destroyed? Is it in freezers waiting for another application? I don't know. That's a very good question. I do know the estimates are that if it was pulled from the marketplace entirely, that it would require an additional 1.5 million head of cattle to augment the ground beef supply in the United States. In other words, lean, finely textured beef was taking the place of about a million five hundred thousand cattle. That's a figure uh, that the American Meat Institute forwards. I'm not overly sure what happened with all the lean, finely textured beef, other than I know the company in question uh, took a significant financial hit, had to lay off workers, and that the actual supply of new lean, finely textured beef dropped significantly after the crisis. So my guess is, my guess, speculation is, either it wasn't harvested from the beef, uh, harvested from the fat trimmings, and that which was or was already in the system was frozen and stored until the crisis passed over. Yeah, I might have miswritten my notes, but I have from your talk that you stated that much of it has been purchased and frozen and waiting to be reintroduced. No, my understanding is that there were buyers, meat buyers. Now, there's so much of this is speculation among among PR people and professionals in the meat industry, but there were meat buyers for organizations that may have purchased lean, finely textured beef to freeze until the crisis cycle basically moved on to something else. Uh, but I haven't talked to any individual meat buyers myself to confirm this. I see. Now, tell me something. What do you foresee as being the next pink slime coming down the road? Can you predict? I can't predict a specific product, but I can tell you these sorts of food crises erupt in response to tampering with consumer expectations over a product that is perceived to be either pristine, natural, or somehow desirable in its, in its original state. Then, because of marketing imperatives or the desire to make more money, organizations begin to tamper with that product, and then you face a consumer backlash. Because if it fits this criteria that we don't communicate the why we're doing it, the how we're doing the process, but most importantly, and this is what we find from incidences, for instance, uh, if you study the case of bovine somatotropin, or recombinant bovine growth hormone added to cows to increase their milk production, uh, if consumers do not see a direct benefit to them, you're setting yourself for a consumption backlash. Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you specific products, but I can tell you the criteria by which you can predict. And then if a product, Melinda, fits those criteria, it's, it's a good chance it's going to happen. Mm, That's great. That's a great piece of advice. Okay, listeners, I need to just take a little break and remind everyone that we are speaking with Dr. Wes Jamison. He is an associate professor of public relations at Palm Beach Atlantic University and president of Cornerstone Public Relations, LLC. Interestingly, he holds a Ph.D. from Oregon State University in agricultural politics and another Ph.D., all but dissertation, from the University of Florida in public relations. And his specialty is persuasive messages in agricultural politics and policy and also the use of science to amplify or attenuate messages. Now, Dr. Jameson, you've got a book forthcoming on the social ecology of meat. 
Tell me what that's about. The book that I'm writing will place meat in the context of the politics, ethics, cultural history, and sociological context of American culture. I'm not so much interested in the fact that we eat meat, but the book itself will talk about meat as a symbol in our culture wars over contested meanings of the roles of animals and the contested meanings over what meat is and what meat should be. And so there'll be chapters that discuss the claims and counterclaims regarding nutrient value. There'll be chapters in the book that talk about why do we eat meat, not only for the nutrient value, but sociologically and culturally, why do we do it? What are the consequences of eating dead animals? So the book attempts to place meat eating in the context of 21st century American culture and explain it in such a way that people will look at it and say, I understand. That's why we have these crises. Mm-hmm. I read an interesting, it was a fiction book, and it was a story about a young man who, in his culture, a rite of passage was the slaughter of an animal. And I thought, you know, if we all either experienced or witnessed the slaughter of an animal, I think that we would have a totally different relationship with meat. Well, one of the things I think the book will argue, and not exclusively, but argue is one of the issues we find in our, in fact, all of our meat supply, all of our food supply, and not just the production of meat from animals, is the idea of alienation from the production of food from its processing and consumption. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in many ways, not only if we killed our own animals and cooked them, but if we we grew our own tomatoes and harvested them, we would have a higher degree of food literacy uh, as to how our food is actually produced. But that's a, you know, that's more or less a, a characteristic of, of postmodern society, post-industrial society, the specialization between production and consumption of goods. But I, I'm convinced that that's one of the factors, is that we, do, we are alienated from the production and processing of our foods. And so, therefore, that lack of understanding creates a baseline of angst and anxiety about how the food itself is produced. Mm-hmm. And you also talk a lot about the guilt that's associated with certain foods and how guilt plays into a lot of these public relations fiascos that happen in the media. Well, for one instance, we'll just take the idea of meat, since that's what the book's going to be about. Clearly, in our research, consumers face a difficult dilemma and that your typical meat consumer also lives in the home with companion animals, which creates a a large degree of cognitive dissonance between how they think they view animals as companions or fur children or something really to be treated as an individual versus the animals they consume that they don't even think about. There's a wonderful book uh, in 2006 called Pets in America that talks about this idea of the incongruence between how we treat the animals in our home versus the animals on our plates. And so when you begin to look at the persuasive messages of the opponents of industrial meat production, they try to point that incongruence out, that dissonance. They try to increase the discomfort in a consumer about the fact that they treat one animal as if it was a companion, another animal as it was was cuisine. Mm -hmm. And what we find, in the at least in the political messaging research we've done, 
is that that's very effective at persuading consumers to support issue-specific legislation or regulations at the local, state, and potentially federal level. So if if uh, if it become if I'm treating my companion animal in the home as if it was almost a surrogate family member, and then I see an image and read information about how, for instance, an animal rights group purports that pigs are treated in sow stalls, I have a large degree of guilt if I'm eating pork chops. Mm-hmm. And although I may not stop eating pork chops, I'm certainly willing to either donate money or support legislation to increase stall space or do, to do away with stalls altogether. That's very clear. Well, and I think that consumers have largely been quite effective in changing the way animals are reared towards a higher level of compassion. And I don't know what the tools are for effectiveness, but it sounds like guilt is, is a core principle. What else do you think has moved the dial to get rid of some of the more uncomfortable kinds of animal rearing in an industrial system? Well, I would say, Melinda, that the uh, the success has been sporadic, but when it has occurred, when you begin to see changes in large-scale industrialized animal production, it's because of two factors. Uh, animal welfare and animal rights groups demonstrate their effectiveness at mobilizing opinion against the process, and they have discovered that agriculture producers, food producers, are price takers. And what that means is they are oftentimes at the beck and call at the grocery chain. So what you see is retail activism by organizations that oppose industrial agriculture, and they go directly to the meat buyers. They they put pressure on meat buyers, and then the meat buyers uh, begin to dictate changes, for instance, in gestation stalls, and the pork producers have no choice. Once a retailer says, we're going to stop buying product, agriculture responds. And I'll tell one quick anecdote. When When I worked with Publix supermarkets, we had a what I'll call an aesthetic food issue. It really wasn't a food safety issue, but the the chicken meat itself, for a variety of physiological and scientific reasons, was not as aesthetically pleasing as it normally was. There was no change to the meat. There was no change to the texture. It just had a large degree of blood in it for a variety of reasons. And as we brought in the scientific expertise and the the food safety expertise and the food scientists to communicate to the public's meat buyers they stopped us in mid-sentence and said, wait, wait a second. I'm not here to defend your product. I'm here to sell it. So either change or find someone else who can provide us the product we want. That's a perfect metaphor for what happens when you can influence a retailer. They have direct access and influence to the producers of meat and can change the way they produce the animals. And I think those are the two factors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think consumers fully understand the incredible power that they have. And I once read where it takes like 15 requests for a consumer to ask a store manager to do something, to, to, to see change. But I think many times as consumers, you know, we see ourselves as a single unit. Maybe we don't make that much of a difference. But over time, with the numbers of consumers making certain demands, we have seen change. I would put it this way. At least in my research, 
most people don't think about their food choices most of the time. I would say that most food issues are background noise that consumers put on the back burner, if you will, or even in the Tupperware on the bottom shelf of their brain and store it until we have a news break, news story about food safety or food prices reach a point where it, where it really gets their, gets their attention. So in other words, I would say it's a back-of-mind issue until it's not, until it's brought to front of mind because we take our food supply for granted. Mm-hmm. There's not been a lot of evidence that consumers are able to maintain high degrees of attentiveness, much less activism regarding their food supply uh, because it's such a taken, in our culture, our food supply is so taken for granted. However, it's very clear that, that opinion leaders and what I'll call sort of the uh, cognitive elites in our culture who have been focused on this have been able to highlight, uh, increase awareness about our food. But once again, what you see, at least from the survey data that I see, you don't see, for instance, animal welfare in the top three concerns of most surveys. You see food affordability, food availability, and food safety as the three foremost concerns in consumers' minds until we have an issue and then that goes away pretty quickly. And it's so critical how those surveys are designed. You know, oh, if, absolutely. if the consumer yeah. is given the choice or if the consumer is asked, you know, to just name three things off the top of their head. So I, I always like to really take a close look at survey data for that reason. You know, one of the things that you said in your presentation, which I thought was really important, you said food is the way we welcome a person to our culture and it's extremely symbolic. And you describe food as a phenotype to culture. So it tells us about a culture. And if you want to know about a culture, you say, look at what it eats. Yes. You can tell many of the values of a culture by not only what it eats, but how that culture eats it. And I've traveled enough that my own personal experience supports what I learned in anthropology classes, that there'll be, a, there'll be rituals in every culture where you'll be presented with something to eat and you'll be, your welcomeness, your, your ability to integrate in that culture will be gauged by your willingness to eat what's presented. Another anecdote, I married a German woman and completely foreign to me. I was invited for a New Year's celebration to her home with her German immigrant parents, and they were eating something for New Year's Day that looked like a black garden snake. I had never had eel in my life and have not had it since, <laughs> but I knew enough to understand that I had better choke it down if I ever had any hopes of being accepted into that family. And that's universal. I think food anthropologists, and you would know this better than I would, uh, universally we gauge a culture by what it eats, and then the culture gauges us by whether we'll eat it. Oh, that's very interesting. We just have a minute left. Do you have anything you want to leave our listeners with? I would say this, that food issues are incredibly complex for three reasons. Food's incredibly symbolic. Secondly, it's something we do routinely. We take into our bodies, and therefore it's incredibly emotional. And third, the information about it is very difficult to dig through and get to the bottom of. So it takes a rational, logical consumer who's thoughtful to make those logical, rational choices. Does your new book have a title yet? The Social Ecology of Meat. 
Social Ecology of Meat. Okay, and that's firm. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. We've been speaking with Dr. Wes Jamison, an Associate Professor of Public Relations at Palm Beach Atlantic University and President of Cornerstone Public Relations. Look for his new book on the social ecology of meat. And I want to thank you so much, listeners, for joining us. And in closing, I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Jameson. Thank you, Melinda.